So let me encourage you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we will consider especially verses 21 through 25. I won't read them. We'll read them several times during the course of the sermon. But right now we're going to bow our heads before our gracious God seek his help. Lord our God, we thank you for all the ways in which you display your gracious hand to undeserving sinners. We thank you that you have sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to live for us and to obey for us and to die for us and to rise for us and to intercede for us. We thank you for him and the manifold grace that he gives to us. Thank you for common grace. Thank you for saving grace and sanctifying grace and supporting grace. We ask that you this very hour now would give to your people the blessings that Jesus died to secure, may he be glorified in the proclamation of his most holy word. We ask in his blessed name, amen. amen. Well, uh, today is Father's Day. And I, I do greet all of you who are fathers and grandfathers, and in one sense, to everyone else, a happy Father's Day, a blessed Father's Day. So much of Christianity is under attack. Fatherhood is under attack, and we need to uphold the principles of biblical fatherhood. This morning, our text brings into view another vital subject which is under attack, and it has been under attack in our day, just as it has been attacked in the days of the Apostle Paul. And our text underscores that very fact. Paul tells us that the gospel was under attack even as he preached it. And this is why I'm grateful for the opportunity to continue our expositions in 1st Corinthians. For the sake of our visitors, some have not been here for these sermons, uh, it will be helpful to remember how we have arrived at our particular text and where we have been uh, and get uh, refreshed, reminded, and caught up together. Paul has been concerned with a tendency among the Corinthian congregation to focus too much on particular men. It's, it's not wrong to esteem our pastors and our ministers. It is right, but there was too much of the wrong focus on particular men at Corinth. It caused divisions in the assembly which were very harmful. It was harmful to the life of the church and harmful to the testimony of the church. Can you imagine being a visitor at Corinth on the Lord's Day and, uh, and greeting some of the members and having someone say, well, 
I don't know what you think of Peter, and I don't know what you think of Apollos, but I'm a Paul man. Well, another brother, I'm an Apollos man. I love Apollos. And these other men, well, they're okay, but Apollos is the real deal, or uh, Peter and others who were separating themselves in this way. Well, I'm of Christ, a more spiritual, they think, uh, kind of a person. Can you imagine the impression it would make upon people of what the gospel was supposed to produce? That's why I say it was harmful to the life of the church, harmful to the testimony of the church. And some of the church members were actually hostile and competitive in their support of their attachments. Paul saw that some of them were so taken up with this childishness that they made their baptism support their claim to be some kind of special disciples of one or the other of them. And on this basis, the Apostle Paul is glad for his commission that Christ commissioned him with, what Christ called, called him to do, because his commission from Christ mandated the activities and manner of his ministry. And this is where verse 17 comes in. Uh, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. He says, God has restricted me, as it were, hand me in to a particular ministry that protects me from certain excesses. Besides, he talks about the divisive attitude there. There was another thing being addressed in this verse as well. There was also a taste among many of these believers for Greek philosophy called wisdom, called word wisdom, uh, and eloquent speeches. And Paul addresses this starting in verse 18. You see, he's still dealing with divisions, but he's also dealing with their love for eloquence, what they called eloquence. And Paul, uh, as I say, addresses this starting in verse 18. He contrasts especially worldly wisdom with gospel preaching. In verses 18 through 20, he asserts and addresses the failure of gospel despisers. He says they have failed. And he issues forth a challenge to them. Paul declares God's reaction to the uh, wisdom of the world, verse 19. And this is a, a key text, Old Testament quote, where Paul says, well, what's God doing? What's God doing in our church? What's God doing in the world? What's God doing with men and their supposed wisdom? And God says this, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So you see, God's not, uh, God's not given up, not surrendered. He's not said, well, these guys will never listen to us. He says, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to take action. That's, that's the kind of God we serve. The, the same God who said to Satan, I will create enmity. It's the same God who said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the clever of the cleverness I will set aside. And that's what really 
comes out in the following verses how God does this in particular. And as Paul anticipates opening up God's opposition to worldly wisdom, he throws out this challenge. Where are they? Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Well, that's where we have been in previous sermons. And at this point, since uh, the word of the cross is foolishness to the world, a question ought to come to mind uh, if you're thinking through the way Paul brings his instruction to the Corinthians, a little question ought to pop up in your mind. If the word of the cross is foolishness to the world, why does Paul continue to preach this gospel so, since it is so frequently rejected by those who hear it. Why? Why would you why would you go preaching a gospel to sinners when sinners regard it as foolishness? They're not going to listen. They're not going to regard it. You know there are many people in churches today who do just that. They say people aren't going to listen to preaching. Why do you preach? Why? Well, Paul has an answer. He has a divine answer. And that's what we're going to be considering this morning. It's the burden of verses 21 to 25. And this is Paul's rationale for preaching a rejected and despised gospel. Why do it? Why? If I can make it a little bit personal. Why do I travel across the Gothels Bridge and the Verrazano Narrows Bridge to stand in flat on Flash British Avenue in Brooklyn and preach the gospel? Why? Well, here is the answer. Here it is. There is, first of all, a general reason. A general reason, and that's in verse 21. It's God's determined method. God's God has a determination. God is not sitting by, as I say, doing nothing, worrying, wringing his hands. He has a determined method. He's sticking by it. He has stuck by it for over 2,000 years. And he will stand by it until Christ comes. That's point number one. Point number two, I don't know exactly how much I'll get through this. This point number two, there's a more specific reason in verses 22 to 25, and I'll tell you what it is right away. God's gospel preached actually saves. It doesn't matter that people don't like the gospel. It doesn't matter that people don't like preaching. It doesn't matter. God's gospel actually saves. That's as Pastor said this morning. Special saving grace, not common grace, Common grace is involved, but it's special grace. And God's gospel 
actually saves when it is preached. Now, there are a lot of qualifications we can make, and I'm not going to make every qualification this morning so I can get through the material that we want to get through. But there are a lot of things we could say besides. But we're going to stick very closely to what God's holy word says. So, as you listen to me, questions arise in your mind. Remember what we're doing. We're trying to follow the track of the Bible. So, first of all, there is a general reason why Paul preaches the gospel. It's a general reason. It's that it's God's determined method. Paul, in his practice, submits to the sovereign purpose of God. In verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached or the or the or the foolishness of preaching to save those who believed. Believe. So here's uh, Paul in his God-centered heart and mind. And this is how he makes his statement. Notice that he mentions God three times in one sentence. In the very first little section there, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was well pleased to do thus. You see, three times in one sentence. And the more you think about it, I think the more you will see how God-centered Paul is. All the way back in verse 20, at, uh, toward the end there. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, he's uh, speaking of God's humiliating treatment of the world's wisdom. When you listen to what the pundits say, if you read the tabloids, if you watch the news, if you listen to the movers and the shakers, do remember this. Whatever you hear from them, God is humiliating them. God is putting them under his thumb. God is in control. That's what Paul is saying. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That's what he says. All the way back in verse 17. Christ, who is God, determined how Paul would fulfill his ministry, preaching the gospel. You see, Paul's God-centered. Now in verse 21, Paul doesn't speak about himself so much as he speaks about God's saving method. Paul does speak about the world and their efforts to know God. Now, men ought to know God. They live in his world. They breathe his air. They eat the food that he provides. They soak in the sunshine on the beaches, which God shines upon them. They ought to, men, men of the world ought to know God since he has provided convincing evidence, abundant convincing evidence of his 
attributes, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, so that they are without excuse. That's Romans 1.20. But mankind has not responded to those realities with faith. In fact, when Paul preached to the Athenian philosophers, he pointed out to them, you'll remember, that they had a temple to an unknown God. That was a confession that they did not know God, or at least one God, and it happened to be, as Paul said, the true God who made heaven and earth and all things, who gives to all life and breath and all things. They said, we don't really know God. Paul uses that as the entrance into their consciences to preach the gospel. And when Paul was done preaching, most of those philosophers were no closer to the knowledge of God. And it's just the same day, same way, in our day, among our most educated thinkers, who are the big wigs that get the most airtime, who people regard as the smart men. Well, good name a number. I'll just name two for you. Stephen Hawking, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I don't know what you think about Neil deGrasse Tyson, but I tell you, he is despicable. He is disgusting. He's brilliant. Yeah, I know. Brilliant. He's disgusting. These men have made a name, not only with their academic credentials. Oh, yes. Very smart but also with their aggressive unbelief. Now, why has this happened? Why haven't such intelligent men arrived at the knowledge of God? Well, Paul begins with verse 21 with the real reason. And here it is. It's kind of striking. If you read over the text again and again, like I have done, sooner or later it's going to start sinking into this hard cranium of ours. God was too smart. God was too wise to let men arrive by their own intellect at the knowledge of God. That's why. Notice verse 21a. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. What's Paul saying? He's saying, oh, God could have let them know. God could have let them find it. In fact, on, on Mars Hill, he's telling the Athenian philosophers again that God has put us in the nations, put us where we live, so that men might grope after him if perhaps they may find him. And that, that in its sense is another humiliation of the world. The world... The world and its wisdom is like a bunch of blind men. Where is it? Where is it? I know it's around here somewhere. But they don't see. And that's God's wisdom. That's God's wisdom. That's what God does. Dear brethren, don't forget it. God's in control. And even when men, with all of their intellectual abilities... When men don't find God, God's in control of that. You know, 
It reminds me of the broad evangelicalism that our brother, Pastor Kate, talked about this morning. That it is God's grace that opens our eyes to see things that the wisest men of our society don't see. Dr. Leon Morris, the commentator, summarizes what Paul is saying in verse 21 this way. He says, God purposed not to allow man to use his intellectual powers to arrive at the truth, to arrive at the saving knowledge of God. God has actually purposed this based on his preeminent wisdom. That's, that's what's behind it. God's wisdom. He didn't want man, particularly sinful man, to reason it out and come to the right conclusions on the basis of his unaided intellect. And you know what the result would be if man came to the knowledge of God based upon his intellectual cogitations. What would happen? Well, we've seen it. They become proud and arrogant. I did it my way. Men would have been even more proud and arrogant than they already are. Unbelieving man is arrogant in the extreme and no amount of information will change his heart. You have to understand that. When you're talking to people about the gospel and you think you have a clever way of presenting it and you have a clever argument, I've been this way, I can, I, can, I can give you some good arguments and twist men's arms. And you need to believe in God, but they will not. No amount of information, raw information, will change his heart. Instead, God has purposefully and joyfully took what men would evaluate as foolishness to communicate his gifts of mercy, grace, and salvation to men. That's what... Again, verse 21 says, God was well pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. God was well pleased. It's God's eternal purpose. That's what, when it talks about well pleasing to God, it's his eternal purpose and his delight. His eternal good purpose was to use gospel preaching to save his people. That, that whole way that Paul speaks about his task, which God has assigned him, which God uses to save men, uh, that, that has two aspects to it. Preaching has two aspects to it. It has content and form. I'll give you an illustration. I hope it helps. A lot's been said about the word preaching. Uh, my New American Standard has the message preached, not a bad translation. But the word refers to an authoritative proclamation of a herald, someone appointed by a king or higher to proclaim the message on behalf of the king. Like I say, the word preaching refers to both content and form. Imagine then that, and we have some students here, so 
it will be a little less imagination for them than for some of us who have long been out of the public school system. Imagine that you were asked to write a poem for your school for a special occasion. And so you write your poem. You know, it's got to have a meter. It's got to have iambic pentameter. And uh, the last word has to rhyme. You know, like Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. You know, it's got to have that form. But it also has to have content. It's got to make sense. So when someone tells you, I liked your poem, they're referring to the content, because of course it, it's, it's like a child's joke. You know, sometimes children try and tell a joke, I mean really young children, and they think the joke is terribly funny, but it doesn't make any sense to you. So it's hard. You try to laugh to encourage them, but it doesn't make sense. So it's not really a good joke. A joke's got to have content. A poem has to have content, and it also has to have form. And preaching has both content and form. With the gravity appropriate to the one who presents the Word of God. Preaching does not seek to borrow truth from the world, because when we try to borrow when we try to preach the gospel message, it's regarded as foolishness, regardless of the style of the preacher. You have a good illustration of this in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul is preaching to Felix and to Agrippa, King Agrippa. And King Agrippa acknowledged that Paul was a brilliant man, a great speaker. He said, Paul, your great learning is driving you mad. Your words are the ravings of a madman, Paul. You see, it was foolishness to him. It is this gospel message presented in the manner which God has purposed to use to save his people. And God is delighted to use it to save his people. And this is why Paul preaches what so many reject. And Paul's dead. He saw it. He saw it. He even went, as you know, to the synagogues first. And he preached to the place where he should have had the best reception. And sometimes he did have good reception. But then the Jews got jealous and drove him out and stoned him and such like things. But Paul preaches what people of the world routinely reject. So what Paul says in this first point, this is the, this is the general principle that this is God's determined message, is exactly what our Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Verses 25 and 26. Let me read it to you. You can turn there and see it with your eyes as well as hear it with your ears. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus has just been rebuking cities that rejected him. 
that did not believe in him. And he says this. He's not disappointed. In, in one sense, yes, he's sorry to see sinners go to hell. But at this time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. So this is what God does. This is how God publishes his gospel. And we really should not be surprised at the responses of people to the gospel preached. Well, that's point number one. The general reason why Paul preaches a despised and rejected gospel is because that's God's determined method. God's determined method. But uh, a little bit more specific, fleshed out in verses 22 to 25, is God's gospel preached actually saves. God's gospel preached actually saves. This is the method, the only method used by God to save some from their rebellious group spelled out in verses 22 to 25. This is the way God saves. Paul asserts in these verses that he actually preaches, again, what men don't want to hear. The message is indeed what God uses. This is why we preach Christ Crucified. Notice how it starts at verse uh, 22. And the rejection is, is spelled out in this way. And for indeed, Jews ask for signs. We'll touch upon that in a minute. And Greeks search for wisdom. We'll touch about that in a minute. But we don't, pre we don't preach signs. We don't preach miracles. Oh yes, we come to it in the Bible and we preach it. Yeah, that's not the point. But we don't preach signs for signs' sake. And you know, brethren, that some people preach signs for signs' sake. I had a person years ago. My daughter might not have even been born yet. They said, oh, come to my church. My pastor, we won't, he, he won't know your name. You won't tell him your name. He'll know, he'll know who you are. He'll tell you all about yourself. He's a prophet. He's an apostle. He can do miracles. But that's what the Jews want. And Gentiles search for wisdom. They want and finally spun intellectual arguments. But that's not what we do. Yes, we have reasons for our faith. We can give a good account of our faith. But don't get confused. We preach, that's the content of form, Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, that's why they reject it, and to Greeks foolishness, that's why they reject it, they all reject it. But that's what Paul does, Paul preaches, he knows, he knows when he goes and he preaches what's going to happen. And in Corinth, interestingly, when he was in the in Corinth and preaching the gospel, God had to tell him, Paul, don't hold back. 
for no man will attack you to harm you, for I have much people in this city. So, Paul tells us. He preaches what men don't want to hear. The message is indeed what God uses. And that's why we preach Christ crucified. The message is that God has sent his own son to die on the cross to ransom sinful men. That's the heart of the gospel. God sent his son. He sent him for the purpose of redeeming sinful man by taking the sins of his believing people upon the cross to ransom them. And this, the Bible declares, was absolutely necessary. You see, if man had enough resources to accomplish some spiritual good accompanying salvation, you see, if man were only half fallen, and just needed a gentle nudge, then you don't need, you don't need Christ. You don't need the gospel. You just give him a nudge in the right direction, and he'll believe. No, he won't. Not apart from the grace of God, the Satan grace of God. The Bible, that's why the Bible says that Christ had to die. Paul said, uh, I'm roughly paraphrasing that if one could be saved by works, that is by their own performance, then Christ died needlessly. No reason for him to die. Because people could get saved just by getting smarter, just by getting better, just by doing more good works. But no! The death of Christ was absolutely necessary. God is so absolutely holy that he threatened death and brought death for Adam's disobedience to one command, do not eat of this one tree. And that one sin, says Paul, plunged, uh, plunged the entire human race into its present sinful condition under the condemnation of God the just. But again, in God's mercy, his undeserved mercy, his unmerited favor, not one of us who is saved deserved to be saved. Not at all. God provided the remedy in the person of his son, who though fully God, under no compulsion but his love for sinners, took to himself a true humanity. He obeyed God perfectly, no sin. He offered himself a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, where the wrath of God against sin was poured into his soul. He was raised from the dead as a testimony of the acceptability of his death, and he stands ready to save all who come to God by him. And this is the cross of Christ preached by Paul, when he says, we don't preach signs, we don't preach wisdom, we preach Christ, Crucified. This is Paul's preaching. But it is not what men want to hear. It's not what men want to hear. Because the Jews, they, they'd heard 
the message? No. Even the, even the apostles had a hard time with the message, you know, until after Pentecost. But the Jews regarded it as a stumbling block, and they would rather have had a miracle, a sign. And you know, it's very interesting how Jesus performed so many signs, and still they're asking for a sign. You know why? Because they never believed. They never believed. They regarded the message as a trap. That's the, that's the stumbling block word. The stumbling block was, a, was a, a hunting method where you set up a stick with a piece of bait on it, and there was a spring to it so that when the animal took the bait, the stick went in and killed the animal. That, that's the way the Jews looked at the gospel. They said the gospel is a trap. It's going to separate us from the law of Moses. It's going to do away with the temple worship. It's a trap. It's a killing trap. That's what they said. And remember, Paul's not anti-Semitic. He's not. He's the man who wrote Romans 9.1. If possible, I would that God send me to hell if they could be saved. Romans 9.1 and 10.1. However, much as he wanted his fellow Jews to be saved, he would not whitewash the truth. Jews rejected the gospel by and large. Thankfully, not all. But then we have to ask the question, why did some receive it? We'll get there. And you can see, I'll, I'll, I will just add this little bit here. You can see this in the gospel records. You can see this when the Lord Jesus spoke to them. Let's look at least at John 2, 18. I have a number of texts we could look at. I don't want to take too much time. But I do want to give you enough so you see where we're coming from. You see that it's biblical. John 2, 18. And now, this happens when Jesus... At the first time, cleansed the temple. You know, he went in there and he turned over changes, uh, tables for the money changes, drove out the animals, and he said, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And um, then the Jews respond. They don't say, yeah, we've been doing wrong. They say, yeah, probably some inappropriate things going on in the temple there. This is what they do. Verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? They weren't asking, is it right or wrong? They said, come on now, show us a sign why you should object to our practices in the temple. You see, there it is. You can look in Matthew 12, 38 and 39, Matthew 16, 1 to 4, other places as well where they have this attitude, show us a sign. They were never satisfied with what they had, as is so often the case, which put 
so much stress on such things. But God is not impressed with their demands. They demand signs. God is unimpressed. Similarly with the Greeks. Now what Paul does, in one sense he takes the Jews in one hand and he takes the Greeks in the other hand and he says they really, they really have the same thing. They really have one common denominator. They reject God's method. They reject the gospel. They have different reasons, but they're doing the same thing. The Greeks, they think the gospel is foolish. And then they demand something more intellectually satisfying, more reasonable. The problem is God's not interested in offering that dinner. No, it's not on the menu. God is not going to save by intellectual persuasion. Now, God will open the eyes and enlighten the mind and truth will dawn. We'll look at it in a moment. Yes, he does that, but it's, it's not a natural process. It's a supernatural process called saving grace. So they think the gospel is uh, unreasonable. What's so unreasonable? Well, God becomes flesh. It was an element in the thinking of the people of that day that God and physical things could not have too close contact. So the whole idea that God becomes, you, you can put it this way, God becomes meat. That's the way they would think about it. That God be, God became flesh, you see. Ugh. It was abhorrent to their minds. Unreasonable. A virgin conceives. Now they're trying to tell us that though it's unreasonable to say a virgin conceived, that a man can conceive. Now that's unreasonable. But, we won't get off track. Life is given through death, through the death of a condemned and hated man. That's the gospel. Righteousness is imparted through a condemned criminal. The resurrection of the dead, even decayed bodies, is part of the gospel message. It's unreasonable. A carpenter and some fishermen and other rejected men become the leaders of the kingdom of God. And then, here's another one of those uh, uh, strange conjunctions of truth, oxymorons. Uh, men are made holy by a message which first proclaims they have no power to make themselves themselves holy. You preach a gospel which you tell which you tell people you have no power to sanctify yourself, and that message is one of the things God uses to transform men into holy holy servants of His, and then. Holiness is expected when you tell them that heaven is secured and all they need is supplied. That's, that's what the gospel says. Well, these are some of the things that seem unreasonable to the reason of men. And yet, this is what God's pleased to use to save men out of these very 
classes of men, both Jews and Greeks, are saved the same way. Now you say, but the Jews have a different problem. They want signs. They're demanding it. The Gentiles have a different problem. They want intellectual. But they're both saved the same way because they're not saved by what they are and what they do. They're saved by what God does. God can take a Jew with his demand for signs and a Gentile with his desire for intellectual conviction and God is the one who does the work. We need confidence in God and his gospel. So both Jews and Greeks are saved by the same names. They are described as the called. <laughs> They're described as the calls back in uh, 1 Corinthians. Okay? Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. They are called. They hear the message of the gospel preached and they are inwardly drawn but the powerful grace of God. Because with the word which is preached comes the illumination of special saving grace. Look with me for a moment at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Particularly verses 3 and 4. Again, Paul, Paul says, uh, let's start back at verse four, verse 1 of the chapter. Therefore, we have, as we have received this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Paul, isn't it discouraging that your brethren, the Jews, don't believe the gospel? Isn't it discouraging, Paul? that is veiled to Gentiles. Look at his answer in verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan is working overtime. He's doing it in our generation. He's blinding the minds of men so that they will not see Make your arguments as good as you wish. Get Ken Ham and Bill Nye together. Won't matter. On, mere, on the basis of mere argumentation, it will not matter. So what's the difference? Well, Paul says, again, you want to know how we do it? You know what? You want to know how we preach the gospel? We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what happened to Paul. He says, it wasn't just the, the bright light in the heavens, it's what God did in my heart. He shone light in the heart 
It was sovereign grace that showed light in the heart and changed Paul from a persecutor to a saint. This is what God does. That's why he says we preach Christ crucified. Because the, the fulcrum on which the change in the soul turns is the grace of God. It's not miracles. It's not persuasion. It's grace. And this is the means by which men are saved. Now, in a, in a sense, everybody who hears the gospel is called. The gospel goes out with a free and discriminate call to men. Jesus says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. There is a sense in which every man who hears, every woman, boy, and girl who hears the gospel is called. And that's what Paul says in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of God. So these people, they hear the word. Some are blinded and some have internal grace, the powerful grace of God. The word says, come to Christ. The gospel says, come to Christ. There are hearts in which God sends his grace. And there are some where Satan blinds the eyes. And this is how Paul describes this second point. God's gospel preached actually saves. In the opinions of men, God's preached gospel will not do anything. They have a wiser and more powerful way. But even, Paul says, God's weakest, most foolish is far better than man's best. Man's best will fail. It has failed. God's least will, weakest will, most foolish proclamation will prevail. And it's vindicated by results. It may not say, seem extensive now to say, we wish that the church was full of people believing in the Lord Jesus, sinners coming in, repenting of their sins, calling on grace. We long, says the hymn say, we long to see that church is full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing God's Redeeming grace. It may seem small now. But wait. In God's time. There's going to be a mighty host of people. Surrounding the throne of God. Worshipping the Lamb. Myriads of myriads. God's gospel preached actually saves. That's our hope. That's why Paul only uses preaching. One note, Charlie, as the saying goes, but I hasten to apply. We've seen the general reason why Paul preaches the despised gospel, because it's God's determined method. More specifically, God's gospel preached actually saves sinners. So, dear brethren, 
we must resist the temptation to get beyond this primary means of God's saving program. People are going to try other means. Well, the reason why our young people are leaving the church is because they don't like the music. Nonsense. Nonsense. You think a beat is going to save children? Think a beat. You think if you if you rap the gospel, people are going to get saved by rap? No. That's not how God saves. He doesn't save by country and music songs, no matter how much you like the style. It's not crooners that save. It's God that saves. Watch out. Because you're going to meet people. I've been there. I remember I was preaching as a pastor, preaching in a church, and we had visitors the one Sunday. And they said, oh, we like the preaching, but the music... Barking up the wrong train. They don't know what they're talking about. They think they don't like your church because of the music. Nonsense! They don't love the gospel. Think about it, brethren. What brings you here week after week after week? It's the truth of the Bible. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the regenerating grace of God that's worked in your heart. And the reason why you have people who walk out of here nonplussed uh, yeah, not one of those churches. It's because they don't believe the gospel. Christ is not precious. I don't care what they say, brethren. What they do declares their estimate of the gospel. When people try to marginalize it. I, I debated whether I should use that word, marginalize, but Pastor used it a little while ago, so I feel good. The gospel gets marginalized. Pushed to the side. It gets contradicted, ignored. And people pretend to make it obsolete. They say, times have changed. People will not listen to preaching. You know what's, what's ironic about that? Paul actually admits that. He says, yeah, people are not going to like the gospel preached. I'm preaching it anyway. Because it's God's method. That's how God saves. Don't ever dream about changing your program to be seeker-sensitive. We need God's grace. Attitudes that state or imply that preaching is insufficient must be seen for what they are. It's unbelief. You mustn't let your confidence in God's gospel Falter. But let me say one other thing and I will be done. I know the concern that your pastor has for your congregation. He might, he might think that I would never preach this way at Trinity. You might think that. That would be wrong. I'm going to preach to you just like I preach in Monkville, New Jersey when I have that opportunity. When I go to Greentown, Pennsylvania. When I go to Dolgeville, New York. When I preach in other places. I'm going to tell you exactly what I tell them. I say the same things. 
sinner. In any church of any size, there's going to be some unconverted. And every time the gospel is preached, there ought to be, Spurgeon was famous for it. They said he got the gospel into everything. Yeah, he did. It was great. But this is why we preach the way we do. This is why we urge you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. To listen to the gospel and to cry to God. This is what you say. Oh God, here I am. I'm a sinner. I'm on my way to hell. I, I hear the gospel, but I don't hear the gospel. I hear the gospel, but I don't believe the gospel. My life contradicts the gospel. Oh God, have mercy upon me. Shine the light into my soul. Do what you said you would do for sinners for your glory. Save this sinner. God doesn't have it any other way. He didn't have any other way. He didn't have any other method. It's this or perish. And you may ask this question, which often comes up. How do I know if I'm called? See, he says that he preaches the gospel and so the called in salvation. How do I know if I'm called? Well, when the true gospel is preached, let me put it this way to you. And I know um, I'm, right now I'm about to mix common and special grace for a moment. When the gospel is preached, you are being called. By common grace, yes. By saving grace, some. And it is your duty to believe it and receive God's grace in Christ. Let me say that you, if you're a sinner today and you're hearing what I'm saying, you have all the warrant you need to believe the gospel. When you respond to the gospel with faith in Christ, you will be saved. Look to Jesus Christ in faith. And when you embrace our Lord by faith, you will know that you have been called. That's how you know. You don't know when the gospel begins to preach, be preached to you. You just know that you are being called. God calls. He called Israel. All day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. That's the general call. But the gospel does not require you to know that you are elect. It does not require that. God's sincere invitation through preaching is everything you need. Please look at Revelation 22. If I had no better text, this is a marvelous text for what I'm saying. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17. Now, Arminians like to preach this text. I think Calvinists should love this text also. Revelation 22, 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Now, when do they say that? How do they say that? Whenever the gospel is preached, whenever the word of God goes forth, then the bride 
And we are, you're a Christian, you're the bride. I'm the bride. And what do we say? What do the gospel scriptures say? Come, come to Christ. Believe Christ. Come for salvation to Christ. And not only us, the spirit and the bride. God is in his church. God is in his temple. The Holy Spirit inhabits his believing people. And when we say to you, come, the Spirit says come. And who gets to come? Well, look at it. Let the one who is thirsty come. You feel your sins. They weigh you down. You sin and you say, tomorrow it's going to be different. I'm going to stop this sinning business. And tomorrow you're no different. You're still sinning. You're thirsty. You're tired of sin. Well, come. He invites you. Come. All you have to do is say, I'm tired of it. Please save me. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes, who wishes, take the water of life without cost. Do you want? It's like Jesus says to the man at the well of Bethesda. It's an amazing passage. He says, do, do you want to get well? What a question. I'm not sure the man wanted to get well. Do you want to be saved? Do you want? Do you want it? You can come. You can cry out to God. To save you. Let's pray. Amen. Oh God in heaven. How we thank you for your heart, for sinners like us. Those of us, Lord, who have come to find out, despite all of our sinfulness and our shame, that we are your called, your elect. We praise and thank you that you had mercy upon us, even while we were in the far country. We thank and worship you. And we pray, our God, have mercy on many more sinners. Look upon our friends, our relatives, aunts and uncles, parents, children. Look upon them and have mercy. Send forth your light and your truth and save, we beseech you. Please hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.